Hey everybody, today's episode of Shoppernomics is brought to you by Decision Breakers, experts in behavior-based shopper strategy, insights, and activation. Visit www.decisionbreakers.com to learn more and see how they can help you win the war in store. Welcome to Shoppernomics, the podcast for marketing and insight professionals who want to stay current on the latest understanding of consumer behavior and decision-making. My name is Phil McGee, and today I'm speaking with Peter Steidel, CEO of NeuroThinking, a marketing firm based in Australia, and an, and an author of several books, including one I just finished called Neuromarketing Essentials, What Every Marketer Needs to Know, which I thought was an excellent summary of current neuroscience and behavioral insights with practical guidance on how to apply them, which, you know, is what this podcast is all about. Now, Peter has an impressive bio with, with way too many accomplishments and experiences to mention, but I do want to mention a few of the highlights. Um, he earned his MBA and PhD from Vienna University. He served on the permanent staff of both Vienna and Adelaide universities. He's an advisor to the World Health Organization. He represented Australia at the European Center for Social Science Research and Documentation. He's delivered keynote addresses and papers at international and local conferences, and his clients include Fortune Global 100 companies, federal and state government agencies, and nonprofit organizations. And I thought my mother had reasons to be proud. So, Peter, <laughs> first, welcome to Shoppernomics. Thank you very much, Phil, and thank you for the invitation. I really look forward to talking with you. That would be really good. Well, it's my pleasure. Um, like I said, I thoroughly enjoyed your book. I know you've written others, which, which I will certainly investigate. And, um, but it, it's a pleasure to talk to uh, you know, the, the person who, who put that, that body of work together. It's, it's, it's amazing because it's a short read. Um, I've got the book here, and it's only you know, 130 pages or so. Um, but it's, it's dense with, with just terrific information. Um, you know, a good balance of, of the science um, as well as the application of the science. So, um, so congratulations for, for a job well done there. And I certainly encourage listeners to, to check out that book. Again, it's called Neuromarketing Essentials, What Every Marketer Needs to Know. Um, so we have a lot to talk about today. And, um, but before we do, can, um, can you, you know, I, I gave an introduction about you, Peter. Is there anything else that you would like listeners to know about you? Oh, look, probably uh, I just would like to mention my main interest right now, um, because I always have areas of interest to develop over a few years, is looking at the, the, the impact of technologies on work, because I think that's an area everybody should be worried about. Retailers, manufacturers, in fact, all industries and all workers, uh, because it will have such a tremendous impact. So I don't want to pursue this here because it's not the right forum, but uh, yeah, that's uh, something that really concerns me. And hopefully more and more people will start to think about it so we can collectively make some good decisions uh, so we don't end up in a big mess. That, that's really all I want to say about it. Yeah, that's really interesting because I, I know today we're going to talk about two broad topics. And, and the second one is, is the impact of technology um, for retailers and, and marketers um, you know, as it relates to, to new technologies that are changing shopper behavior. Uh, so it sounds like you've you, you've now taken that to a, a new a new place. Uh, the impact of technology for workers that that's really fascinating. Uh, it it is, and uh, what really surprises me and worries me is that there is so little action at the government level 
to prepare for this mm. transition period. Yeah. And, uh, and I think unless there's some groundswell of interest and, and somebody pushing the agenda, uh, it's not going to really end up very well for anyone. Yeah. And, and are you talking specifically about um, automation and, and the rise of the robots? Yeah, it, it's well, essentially, I guess the core element really is artificial intelligence, which mm. then drives robotics, but also drives other applications, uh, which affects just about every profession there is. Yeah. And uh, it's not any longer. And, and the interesting thing, and I'm sure you, you had the same experience when I talk to people, they always say, oh, yeah, it will be a big impact, but not in my profession, because mm. nobody can replace what I'm doing. Yeah. And unfortunately, it's that head in the same sort of situation that means that nobody is really, I shouldn't say nobody, but very few people are really engaging with the topic. And it's so important. Absolutely. Yeah, I remember seeing a chart which ranked the professions that are most likely to be um, automated. And, and I think the number one ranking profession was surgeon, which, which makes sense. But at the same time, I'm not sure I would have necessarily thought of that. Um, and uh, some of the others are a little bit more intuitive. Um, you know, it, it, it really makes me concerned about, you know, the kids who are going into college now and, and what should they study? Because it's, it's difficult to anticipate uh, what can and what can't be, um, you know, become basically machine professions. Uh, I agree. And this is the interesting thing, because it's not any longer about you have to learn a particular skill, a particular profession and train for it, because you don't know what it will be. Yes. So now we are saying... Well, actually, what you really need to do is learn how to learn. You have to learn how to break down any barriers to progress, like stress, how to boost your willpower. In other words, it's a lot more self-development and preparing you to be adaptable and resilient yeah. rather than learn one specific thing you have expertise in. Because whatever that might be, in a few years, it will be out of date. So it's going to be an interesting world. Yeah, interesting world. no doubt. Well, I'm, I'm glad I'm... <laughs> It, I'm, I'm not going to be uh, per, professionally impacted by it, um, just you know, given where I am in my career. Um, but uh, it'll be interesting to watch watch the changes as uh, as this moves forward. But um, but okay, so that's a future conversation. Uh, for now, um, for today's conversation, there are two topics that I, I really want to um, dig in deep on, and the first is on the topic of priming. Um, you know, and so priming is, is something that many marketers and retailers can use, uh, something to boost revenues by priming shoppers to visit their store, um, spend more when they're there, and, and even come back more often. And, and, you know, I think the best part of priming is, is priming can be very affordable, unlike many other marketing tactics. Now, you've written extensively about priming, and I'm wondering if, if you have some examples that you can share um, that generates these types of outcomes of, of you know, getting shoppers to spend more, visit more, and things of that nature. Okay. Um, let, let me start with a simple example from the United Kingdom. Uh, a supermarket placed a sticker saying top seller next to the best-selling butter, and they had an increase in sales of that item of 324%. So the cost, as you say, is minimal. I mean, to put the stick on the shelf costs you basically nothing. Sure. And, uh, and yet they had an increase of 324%. Uh, an example from the United States, uh, at petrol stations in Nevada, Ohio, California, and Florida, they used scent machines. So when you put petrol in your tank, you smelled coffee. <laughs> and uh, coffee sales went up 300% at those petrol stations. Uh, in Germany, uh, a 
uh, a Walsh, a car wash service. Uh, they used, uh, you know, the, the usual sort of loyalty thing where you get a card with different squares and then you collect a sticker every time you get your car washed and pay for it. Yes. But they gave you one of those and they said if you have eight paid for car washes, you get one free. Mm. And they tested two cards. One had eight squares, the other one had ten, but two already had a sticker. And when they used the one with the two stickers already there, uh, participation in that program increased by 79%. Um, another example, uh, I think from the UK, in a bottle shop, uh, they, they had French and German wine matched by wine style and price point. Uh, and on odd days, they played German music and on even days, they played French music. When they played German music, German wines uh, were sold, well, German wines accounted for 73% of purchases. When they played French music, it account, French wines accounted for 77% of purchases. When they asked people leaving the bottle shop if they were influenced by the music, the vast majority said, what music? I didn't hear any music. Mm. <laughs> anyway, so these are just examples. You know, different countries, incredible increases. The, the, probably the most expensive application would be the coffee scent, where you need to hire a scent machine. Even that isn't very expensive. And some applications cost you next to nothing or absolutely nothing, like the, the wash pass, uh, where if you print eight or ten squares, it doesn't make any difference to your printing cost. So it's a really effective way of increasing sales. Yeah, that, those are actually those are terrific examples. Um, and you're right; those are small scale interventions, and uh, as a result, you get big changes. So um, you know who who doesn't want that? Um, okay, so so. Maybe we uh, we should have begun by explaining the mechanics of priming, how it actually works. Um, so let's back up, and maybe you could talk about that. So so now that you gave the the application, let's let's now talk about the science behind it. Okay, um, probably as a start, a, a very simple experiment uh, anyone can do. Uh, if you look around you, hopefully in a place where there are maybe other people and lots of things happening, then you close your eyes and try to remember what you have seen. Mm -hmm. And you open your eyes again, you will find that you can remember some things, but not other things. Uh, and in fact, the, the important point is not how much you can remember that's irrelevant. The important point is you didn't decide consciously mm -hmm. that I will remember these things and forget other things. So what we are saying is that there is the non-conscious mind that decides all the sensory inputs that come into the brain. The non-conscious mind decides what do I put in mem into memory. And what do I discard? Now, if you imagine the enormous range and number of sensory inputs the brain receives and your non-conscious mind sorts out all the time, what do I put into memory? What do I discard? It's an astronomically big job. So that's one. I mean, the other area where we immediately know, because it's non-conscious, is managing all our organs. We can't influence what our liver, kidney, or whatever is doing. The non-conscious mind manages all that. So what we are seeing is that we have got this non-conscious mind that has incredible capacity, is very powerful, very fast, and this non-conscious mind drives essentially what we do. Now, let's start with memories. Of course, when you make a purchase decision, memories are important because you draw on your memories. Does it look familiar or not? Do you have experiences with does it actually trigger some experiences I had? Maybe I tried this product before, a similar one, or the same flavor, whatever it might be. That's all something the non-conscious mind has put into your memory, and the non-conscious mind will retrieve, and this will influence your purchase decision. 
Now, the other point, so that's one, that the non-conscious mind is dominant, powerful, fast. Our conscious mind is actually very slow. So the non-conscious mind is dominant. But the other point, which is very important, is what is driving us to actually make decisions and do something. And we have got a, a hormone in our brain called dopamine. And scientists believe that dopamine might explain more than 90% of what we do. What happens is when we do something that is either pleasurable or addresses a goal that we have, uh, we get a dopamine release. And again, as an example, when you think about social media, the reason why so many people love social media and check all the time what's happening on their uh, social media uh, is that they get a dopamine release when they post something, when they get a like, when they uh, believe that or expect that somebody might have responded or said something to them. You get constantly dopamine releases. So the, the social media is, is like your personal drug factory where you can create dopamine hits that make you feel good. Mm -hmm. But the same applies, of course, to shopping, that when you believe this particular purchase will address a goal, uh, you get a dopamine release. Uh, when you believe this particular purchase will help you uh, to eliminate a lot of thinking, you get a dopamine release because the non-conscious mind, of course, doesn't, in fact, it can't really think in a rational way. And it's constantly looking for shortcuts that allow me to eliminate thinking. And when you think about the, the brain, uh, the brain uh, is about 20% of, uh, the, uses about 20% of the energy, but it's only two to 3% of body weight. So the brain is an incredible energy user. And when we think less, we use less energy, which obviously is very important to us, to our non-conscious mind, to preserve energy for other things we need to do. So in summary, because I've waffled on a bit here, we've got the non-conscious mind being incredibly fast and powerful, and we have dopamine uh, driving our decisions. So when we go back to those examples I've used, um, the bestseller, uh, that's basically other people do it. I try to follow it. It's a shortcut. I feel safe. So therefore, it's a good choice. I get a dopamine release. I don't have to think about it. And the important thing with primes is the less the shopper thinks about it, the more effective the prime is, because mm -hmm. there's no rational argument against it. Mm. Uh, if you think about the, the coffee scent, well, of course, it immediately activates positive experiences when I had a coffee last time. Right. So again, I may not think about it, I just go, gee, I really feel like a coffee. Uh, the wash pass, I already have two stickers, it's called the endowment effect. Mm -hmm. Something we, we have, we find is far more valuable than something we might get. So because it's valuable to you, you don't want to waste those two stickers, so you're more likely to go on with the program. Right. And of course, the, the music in the bottle shop is purely about associations. I might have positive associations with France or Germany. The music might remind me of something. Maybe it's a place I want to go. So there are all sorts of possibilities that make me feel like, gee, I really like to try a German wine today or a French wine when they play French music. So as you can see, it's, it's all, as you know, of course, Phil, it's all in the non-conscious. Mm -hmm. It's driving us to a purchase. We don't even know that this is happening, uh, which makes it more effective. And so with very small interventions, very small priming interventions, we can have a very significant effect on sales. Very good and, and well said. And, and, you know, something that... Um you're bringing up, and, and it's really important for people to realize this who, who you know haven't studied priming, you can't use priming to make people do things 
that are inconsistent with their uh, behaviors or beliefs, right? And meaning like, think of the, the gas station example where um, the scent of coffee encouraged people to, to buy coffee. Now, they may not have planned to buy it then, but we're talking about coffee drinkers. You're not going to get somebody who doesn't buy coffee or, or drink coffee to suddenly, you know, get primed into, um, you know, a, a brand new behavior um, or, or something that's kind of inconsistent with, with their values or beliefs about drinking coffee. So, you know, it's, it's not something I think, you know, the way you put it was good. It's like, you know, you, if, if someone has a goal, whether it is an active goal or inactive goal, priming can be used to kind of trigger that, that, that goal. Um, uh, but it can't be, it can't be used to, you know, create goals or, or, uh, you know, new behaviors or value systems, um, you know, th- through, through the subconscious channel. Yeah, I think that's a very important point, Phil, that you raised it, because some people say, oh, you're manipulating the shopper. Right. And in, in fact, we do manipulate them to the degree that they choose our brand rather than another brand, or as you said, that they might buy a coffee now rather than later. But no, we are not manipulating them in the sense that we get them to do something that is not valuable to them. Exactly. It has to trigger a goal. It has to be something that they enjoyed in the past. And of course, there can also be novelty. You might get a, a, a person who has never had coffee, smells the coffee and thinks, I really should try coffee because, you know, I'm curious. But that's again a goal, uh, yeah. seeking novelty. So, we, yes, we can't. We're not manipulating them in a bad sort of uh, 1984 way. We are really just <laughs> shaping the purchase behavior in favor of our brand or product. Right, right. Yeah, so, so priming targets shoppers' ingoing goals. Um, but can priming also work when there's no active goal other than, say, you know, wanting to find a shortcut to eliminate, eliminate the need to think? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's, uh, firstly, we have associations. And again, interestingly, the associations, of course, in our memory bank are built by the non-conscious mind. So when I said earlier, the non-conscious mind decides, I put this into memory, mm-hmm. the non-conscious mind immediately also looks at all the memories that we have already got and decides, should I link this to another memory? So when you think about, let's say, Coca-Cola, you might think of Father Christmas and Red and all sorts of other things, which are all linked to the memory of Coca-Cola. So these associations can be very important in shaping purchase decisions. So for example, in the US, uh, they did uh, wine tasting uh, with with cheese, and um, one group was told that the wine came from California, and another group was told the wine comes from Dakota. And I understand Dakota is not known for its wine, but California is. And interestingly, the wine was rated 80% more positively when they were told it's from California. Um, and they also preferred the cheese and said they will want to come to another tasting more often than the group that was, was told it's from Dakota. So the associations California and Dakota with the wine changed the way people perceive the wine. But I can tell you a funnier one, which is uh, from the UK. Uh, you may have come across Heston Blumenthal. Uh, he's that crazy chef who, you know, designs new dishes at the molecular level. And he runs workshops and he invites people to the workshops and he gives them uh, a glass of white wine and they play uh, the magic flute, which is a nice Mozart, you know, very nice, soft, light music. Then he gives them a glass of red wine and he plays the, the Ride of the Valkyrie, which is very heavy, Wagner, you know, really heavy music. 
Then you ask the audience to describe the wine and invariably they go, oh yeah, the white wine is really nice and fruity and light and lovely. And what about the red wine? Oh, the red wine is really heavy and powerful. Then he tells them it's the same wine that just put a drop of food coloring into the mm. white wine to make it red. But this is the incredible thing. We are, our perceptions, our experiences are shaped so much by our expectations. So priming can also create expectations. Uh, like if I link a particular product with a particular origin, for example, country of origin or place, mm-hmm. it might change the way I experience the product. In a, in a quite weird um, experiment, um, uh, Procter and Gamble apparently asked uh, Walmart if they could color uh, paint the car park in a brand color. And when they did it, the sales of that particular brand, and I don't know any details, they never published details, like how much the sales went up, but the sales of that brand went up. Well, that was purely familiarity. So again, that wasn't the mm. goal, other than, yes, I don't want to spend hours selecting what I should buy. There was this sense of familiarity because it was the same color and people bought that brand more often. Um, so it's, it's, it's interesting. There are so many things we can do. Uh, again, that may not, I mean, painting the car park obviously is a big investment, you wouldn't do that, but there are so many things we can do by creating associations, creating familiarity that also impact sales that, again, don't cost much. Right. Um, that's really interesting. So, you know, so given everything you told us and, and know about priming, um, is it fair to conclude that priming at the retail level is more effective than expensive ad campaigns, you know, if you're a marketer and, and you've got a budget to allocate, um, uh, you know, is, is, is one a, a better choice than the other? Yeah, I mean, the, the two aspects, I guess. The first one is, if I use priming in store, I can actually boost dramatically the effectiveness of my ad campaign. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're coming back to the integrated past the purchase. But I mean, what essentially happens, the ad campaign might create certain memories in the, in the consumer's mind. Uh, it might create or even trigger certain goals. And I can then link those goals in store to my particular brand of product. Uh, I have familiarity because they have been exposed to the ad. I can trigger that. So I can actually extend, and I, I think that's done very poorly by many manufacturers, mm-hmm. the extension of the ad campaign where they often just use an image from the ad campaign rather right. than go, what exactly have we done here with the ad campaign? What are the associations we have created? Uh, what, what is the, uh, the degree of familiarity we have created? What are the specific messages? When I carry that through, I can boost my ad campaign with very little incremental additional cost. If I can't afford both, I would definitely go for in-store in most instances. Certainly with fast-moving consumer goods, you can do a lot in-store with priming that costs you less and really boosts sales far more dramatically. And I mean, the, the examples I used earlier, uh, for example, the bestseller, you know, the butter sales increased by 324%. You're not going to get 324%. To clarify why they got such a big increase, it was a house brand. And so people were surprised that this was the best seller, which had a bigger impact on them buying the product than being a, a well-established uh, major manufacturer brand. So there, there are certain factors that obviously play into it. Uh, I've actually recently used that uh, best seller with a, a part in Singapore. And we got, I think it was a 16% increase, which still is dramatic for basically no cost at all. So it works, but you may not get the 300 plus percent increase. So yes, priming 
in-store uh, is a, a great opportunity for a limited budget to make a major impact. And when I say in-store, of course, it also includes getting people to come into the store, uh, priming you know, on, on, the, on the shop window, priming on the footpath and so on. In other words, in close proximity can also be very effective. Mm. Um, so, so, you know, one of the things you mentioned earlier was about, um, you know, memory and, and how priming um, activates, um, you know, kind of neural uh, networks that, that, you know, trigger memories. Um, and, uh, and one of the things that your book mentioned, and, and, you know, tell me if I didn't get this right, but um, it, it really hit home for me because, you know, it, it just, you know, made a lot of things made sense. And, and essentially, you know, and maybe, maybe these aren't exactly your words, but that we, we don't decide what we remember. We as individuals, you know, we don't choose what we remember, uh, you know, unless we're, you know, we're, we're intentionally studying something, you know, for, for an exam or, or you know, a, a new language or what have you. Sometimes we, we do purposely do that, but 99% but of the time, uh, it's our subconscious that chooses what we're going to remember or not. Um, but but that said, um, what people remember is to some extent within marketers' control, um, and 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 they can do that in a couple of ways. They can do it through kind of physiological channels, uh, through stimuli like you know lights or or colors or color contrast, uh, haptics, motion, music. You know all all kinds of tools and techniques are available, and they can do it through. Um, uh, activating associations in implicit memory, uh, you know, conjuring up positive experiences or, or positive emotions, things that, that are going to, uh, you know, change the, you know, the mood or perspective of, of somebody um, that may make them, uh, you know, more prone to buy, you know, one brand, say, versus another. Um, but, 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 you know, the main point is that we don't, as consumers, we don't, or as people, rather, we don't decide what we're going to remember um, but marketers uh, can actually uh, exert some control over over what they want their consumers to remember. Is, is that a fair way to put that? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And I, I think what you said also then explains why repeat exposures are important, because every time you call up a memory, you strengthen the, the neural connections between the different elements of the memory. Mm -hmm. And the other point is, as a marketer, you know, if I was going to build a really strong brand memory, I make sure it's a diverse brand memory because you mentioned earlier, you know, there are different sensory inputs I can use if I use, uh, you know, probably smell is difficult for some products, but <laughs> right. uh, uh, certainly I, I might use taste and, uh, and, and uh, uh, visual elements like color and, and uh, design elements and so forth. Uh, even the brand name can be linked to something that sure. actually is makes sense and is positive. And when I have this diverse brand memory in the consumer's mind, of course, again, in store, but also with my, with my ad campaign, I cannot trigger the brand in many different ways. Right. Whereas if I have a very narrow brand memory, uh, I'm far more limited in what I can do. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's what you said is, is a really important point because we as marketers should go, what's the brand memory we want to create? Right. And that will help us to then trigger the brand memory in many different ways through priming to have an impact on brand choice. Exactly. And, and of course, a marketer doesn't necessarily need to create all of the, um, the experiences and emotions 
that it wants to associate with, it can, um, for lack of a better term, it can hijack existing memories and emotions um, and then just, just, just create associations with its brand. So, you know, hey, you know, we all smile when we see babies and puppy dogs um, and, and my brand doesn't have meaning, but I can, through my marketing, associate my brand with, you know, babies and puppy dogs. And now all of a sudden I, I'm going to, I'm going to borrow all of this uh, positive emotion um, in, in, my, in my brand equity. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. So priming is a big, big topic. And, and we, I know we just skimmed the surface, but that was a nice primer on priming. And, um, and, and I encourage anyone who wants to learn more about it, uh, certainly to explore, uh, because, uh, you know, for the reasons that Peter mentioned, it, it is affordable. Um, it, it, it does have proven application, um, you, you know, and, and but one, what may work in one context may not always work in another context. So, you know, as is always the case, testing is important. Um, but if you know what you're doing and, and you do it in a very deliberate way, deliberate way, then, um, then priming can be very effective for you. But, but obviously you're going to need to know more than what just, um, you know, Peter, you and I talked about. Um, so, so I want to put priming aside because I want to shift gears and, and I want to get your perspective on the on technology. So, you know, we talked earlier in the introduction, how, you know, you want to, um, as kind of a, a next area of study for you, understand the impact of technology on work. Um, but you've already, um, you know, tried to understand the impact of technology on the way people shop. And, you know, we're all contemplating the implication of these technology changes and what they mean for us as marketers and retailers. Uh, but I'm curious, in your opinion, what technologies do you think are going to have the greatest impact on shopping and are retailers ready for them? Right. Look, I, I think the greatest impact overall will come from the personal or shopping assistant, or it's your digital assistant. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I mean, with Google, uh, Microsoft, with all the big players now pushing uh, Amazon, of course, leader in this sure. area, uh, pushing their, their digital assistants, uh, we're already seeing more and more shoppers uh, delegating their shopping to the digital assistant. Now, if you step back for a moment and go, where's retail today? Uh, in a lot of uh, retail sectors, they have trained consumers to be very price conscious by constantly offering specials and promoting specials. And so we have got price consciousness. The second element is convenience. Uh, you know, especially if you look at FMCG supermarkets and, 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 uh, and retailing, there's this effort to make it more and more convenient to do your shopping, you know, from home delivery, online ordering, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it's all about convenience and price. Now, when you take this to the end point, if I'm trying to and I really now value convenience and price, of course, my digital assistant is perfect because I can delegate the shopping. I mean, you know, as I go through the day, I go, oh, hello, Alexa, put this on the shopping list or that. And then I go, give me the, get, get the best price. You know, and it's somebody who has reliable delivery on Wednesday night at the best price. And I, I don't do the shopping myself. Right. And uh, we know from early data that a lot of people don't specify the brand in many categories anymore. They say, oh, I need milk, but they don't go, I want this particular brand of milk. And so what we, what we're essentially seeing is that the, the shopping, the purchase decision, which brand I buy, 
and also to a lesser degree yet, but it will of course build over time, which retailer I buy from is delegated to technology. And this is the big problem we have got because the retailers have trained the shopper to be price conscious and to value convenience. And now this mindset is going to take the shopping exercise away from the shopper and it will end up with technology that obviously can get the best price that obviously can also favor the owner like Amazon, for example. <laughs> and God, I mean, Amazon would be laughing getting all this information from all the different shoppers. Uh, it's absolutely fantastic. But anyway, coming back to retailers, the, to me, the, the only path that's open to retailers long term is to actually make the shopping experience so compelling, so joyful, novel, interesting, surprising, whatever it might be, that the shopper goes, no, no, I want to do the shopping myself. I'm not going to delegate it. <clears throat> if the retailer doesn't manage that, then eventually the retailer will lose market share unless that particular retailer is the price leader. And of course, not everybody can be the price leader. So a lot of retailers will struggle very badly. It's really interesting. You're saying, you're saying a few things there. You're saying that this is going to redefine the basis on which retailers compete um, in, in a number of domains. So for example, um, you know, a, a price leader will do well by, by appearing in search results for the best price. Or in, in your example, when you say, Alexa, get me this and, and, or, or tell me where I can get it at the lowest price, it, you know, it, it, it kind of comes up as, as Alexa's suggestion based on, um, you know, what's known about local market prices. Um, Progressive retailers will leverage technology to take convenience to the next level. So, you know, so, so, you know, price is one thing, but then there's convenience, which you talked about, and, and they'll take it to the next level um, by uh, maybe going as far as tapping into smart appliances and, and having auto replenishment when inventory levels uh, are depleting and, and the smart appliances detect that. Um, or, or maybe when Alexa suggests that maybe it's time to treat yourself to something indulgent because the holiday weekend is approaching. Um, but at the same time, it sounds like you're also saying that, um, that retailers, if they've developed strong emotional relationships with their customers, uh, that they may be less threatened um, or, or better insulated by these technologies uh, or these technology threats. Is, am, I, am I hearing that correctly? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And Unfortunately, you know, if you're sitting in the middle, you're not the price leader and you're not so dominant that you can afford to get into collaborations with, let's say, the, the fridge manufacturers and so on, you're going to really suffer. And that mid-ground comprises of quite a number of retailers and some are major operations in their own right. And they are going to really suffer, which will have a very dramatic impact on the whole retail scene. Yeah. Um, so, Peter, tell me, I don't know if you have a point of view on this or not, but a question that I've um, kind of thought a lot about is what happens when, um, you know, because of, um, you know, online shopping, whether it's apps or whether it's, you know, Alexa, who I say, you know, I need, I need more paper towels and she defaults to the brand that, you know, she asked me to specify, let's say 18 months ago, and now I don't say I want bounty paper towels anymore. I just say, get me paper towels. And she knows that I want bounty paper towels. And so, so you know, 
now you've got defaults on on electronic shopping lists, and and I'm you know as a marketer I'm, I'm very concerned about that, um, especially if my competitor is the default brand and I'm not. Um, now you know if I'm proactive, then maybe I can find ways to get my brand to be the default. Um, you know, I don't even know if this is possible, but but maybe you know when Alexa is initially programmed, she can she can come out of the gate with a a set of default brands that that maybe marketers buy. Uh, now maybe this is really happening, or maybe it's illegal. I don't know, but just you know for the sake of discussion, let's say that's possible. Um, you know, it it could be a very um, a very threatening idea that um, that I don't have control over whether or not I'm the default choice. And so if, if I'm a marketer and that is my situation, let's say my competitor, 70% of the time is the default choice and, and I'm the default choice only you know, 20 or 30% of the time, what can I do as a marketer? Or, or is there nothing I can do? Or do I just have to spend you know, twice as much on TV ad campaigns? Well, there are two things. I mean, one is that there's a likelihood, I guess, that you can buy... <clears throat> Uh, um, the, the option of your brand being mentioned. In other words, if you as a shopper go, I want paper towels, um, Alexa might say, uh, well, you didn't mention a brand, should I buy something like brand A? Mm -hmm. And, and uh, brand A, of course, paid for that. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. so Amazon can soak up a whole lot of advertising revenue as well sure. uh, by doing that. Uh, but if that happens, then the, the brands that have the deepest pockets will do well. And the others will suffer. Um, the, the only other option uh, for you really is to build a brand people love. And when I say love, it has to address a goal really effectively. It has to make them feel good. Uh, they have to enjoy it. Or it has to be a brand they want to be seen, to, to consume, whatever it might be. But there has to, that comes back to priming in some ways. Yeah. But uh, you have to build a brand that's not succeeding because it's cheap that's not succeeding because it's constantly on special, uh, and that's not succeeding simply because of familiarity, because it's a leading brand, everybody knows, so we buy it, we don't really know why, it's okay, it mm -hmm. does, it's fit for purpose, but there's no real emotional connection with the brand. No, we now need a real emotional connection with the brand. And to me, that's a big challenge, and it will take many brands many years to build that emotional connection, and that's why I think they have to start now, rather than you know, five years, to, 10 years down the track, go, oh, we've lost all this market share because right. people buy online. Right. So, of course, you know, the, the best approach is to be first to be that default brand, you know, how, however you become the default. Um, because once someone else is there, then it's either, either too much work or too expensive to try to, um, you know, supplant the, 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 uh, the current default with, uh, you know, with, with yourself. Um, and so anticipating what's next in technology clearly is, is going to be an advantage. And to that point, as you've thought about and, and done your research on technology and its impact on shopping, um, do you think anyone has a, um, a prediction for the future on what it looks like? So, you know, yesterday it was, you know, almost exclusively mobile phones. Uh, today it's it's mobile mobile phones um, and these these digital assistants like Alexa um, and and obviously we're going to see that 
develop and mature. Um, but what do you what do you know about what's going to come after that that maybe marketers can anticipate? Um, so if if in 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 whatever scenario that is, if being the default choice is important, then you know you go work. You can start planning today for, you know, for your future situation with the new technology. Right. That's a, a complex question, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry <laughs> about I that. To, <laughs> I think, the, to me, one of the, the biggest uh, developments to, to monitor is voice. Mm. Because, I mean, voice has made tremendous progress, as we all know. You know, we now have uh, artificial intelligence that can respond to simple questions, give us answers, blah, blah, blah. And voice recognition, of course, is terrific. And essentially what it means, let's take a mobile phone. Mm -hmm. uh, If I can use voice, uh, I don't need to dial anymore because I can just instruct this gadget to dial a number, to make a connection, to do this, that, and the other. And in conjunction with voice, we also now have got projection technology that allows me to have a screen when there are images involved anywhere, mm-hmm. including on my own skin, but on the wall anywhere with, again, a little bit gadget. So I could literally have a watch that serves as a mobile phone, as mm-hmm. a projector, as basically everything I need to interact with the world. Sure. And that means that uh, the traditional way of buying and reviewing products and so on is going to change. Um, And I think that's important. The other important thing, I think, is augmented reality and eventually virtual reality, uh, where people will automatically, when they they visit a shop, they do it in in a virtual reality way, because they can see everything, touch everything, it's easy, there are no crowds, there are no waiting at, at, at uh, checkout counters. Uh, I can you know, eventually even feel the touching material. Uh, I can do all these things and I can call up at my will, oh, I want to see a demonstration of that product or if it's a food product, I want to see a recipe, whatever. It's all going to be in the virtual space. And the only thing that's holding it back now, despite the technology being not quite as good as it needs to be, is the, the penetration uh, of um, uh, virtual reality headsets. Now, that's going to change, obviously, over time. And I think that will be a dramatic change for how retailers work online. If you, if you go to in-store, I mean, there are, there are great opportunities uh, in, in terms of using uh, technology in-store uh, with uh, uh, 3D models. Um, um, Augmented reality already being used by some retailers. Mm. Uh, I can use technology, of course, with kiosk in store right now, and this will become more sophisticated to do all the things they can do online anyway. So I can do lots of things. But what worries me, I guess, is that the progress in the physical store is going to be slower and more limited, naturally, compared to what I can do in cyberspace. And so as a retailer, it's not just right now, it's about you know delivery issues. And uh, as we all know, grocery retailers make less money with their online sales because of delivery costs and blah, blah, blah. But that's not going to be the main game in the future. The main game will be adapting very quickly to new technology opportunities. And without having that strong connection to my customers, my shoppers, I'm going to lose some which will be attracted by technologies I'm not offering, where they can be shopping in a more convenient way or there might again be a price advantage. Right. So it's going to be really interesting. And look, on one hand, I'm really excited 
but on the other hand, I'm really worried because this could end up uh, as a, you know, a, a very small number of retailers dominating the retailing and a lack of diversity and everything driven by technology and shoppers being dumped down because they simply delegate everything, they don't check anything, and in fact, they become very poor decision makers. Right, right. Well, so it's interesting because you, you talked about the competitive dynamics between retailers and how the technology is going to change that. Um, but as you're talking, it all, I'm also thinking that the, um, the dynamic between retailers and manufacturers and you know the, the proverbial power shift, which tends to swing back and forth over time, um, what impact will be made there? Because you know, if, if I'm a retailer, um, I, I'm, you know, I'm not necessarily, I don't, I don't have skin in the game for any particular brand, um, with the possible exception of my own brand. Um, you know, other than if I'm generating revenue by by helping brands, you know, advertise or become, you know, default list items or or, or what have you. Um, but but as a retailer, I I. I favor competition because I don't want too much, you know, kind of uh, power or control getting in the hands of, of any one uh, particular manufacturer. So, uh, so as a retailer, um, number one, I like competition. Number two, what's most important to me as a retailer, because shoppers have choices, is giving shoppers what they want. And so, um, you know, as I think about technology advancing, um, very early in our conversation, you, you talked about AI, and and retailers seem to have, um, you know, by far an advantage on AI. They've got the data. They've been developing um, the, uh, the, you know, the technology, the algorithms uh, to use those data, and and find ways to get better and better at anticipating and predicting. Uh, what shoppers will need based on past purchases. You know, they take the uh, "you are what you buy" approach, and um, and and you've got a history of buying these things. I can now predict, you know, the, these other things you're going to buy as you enter new life stages, um, uh, or you know, or or begin to enter new categories. And so, I think AI, um, maybe to add to those, you know, great, great kind of visionary examples that you gave. Uh, is, is another area which is going to be really important because, you know, now it's not just about marketers getting people to buy what they want them to buy, but it's also retailers uh, helping shoppers to find things that are really consistent with their lifestyles um, and, and personal preferences, um, you know, through AI and uh, kind of automated machine learning. It, I, I think that's a, a really interesting area because what we will see eventually is that AI will talk to AI to make the purchase decision. <laughs> In other words, you know, you delegate your shopping, and Alexa will talk to the AI at whatever. In fact, several retailers to compare, and the AI will negotiate with the other AI. You know, what's the deal we offer here, and then the uh, digital assistant AI will decide what to pick. So it's. I think to me the problem is that. It's very, very difficult for a retailer unless you are absolutely dominant and have fantastic resources, which typically means you have to be a pure online play because your, right. your uh, company valuation allows you to get money very cheaply. Um, but if you're stuck as a traditional retailer that's now transitioning 
into the new environment, it's an incredibly difficult battle to win. I mean, for a start, if you look at, at grocery retailing, a lot of the, the mainstream big retailers are still struggling to even just consolidate their data. Right. They typically have several different uh, data lakes and they don't talk to each other. And once they've done that, of course, the whole scene has moved on to maybe a far more sophisticated AI uh, situation. The, the, the platform providers like Amazon and Alibaba and so on offer retailers an opportunity to be seen at relatively low cost, which is good in terms of getting more competition. It's good for the shopper, mm -hmm. but also as they capture more of the market, because they also tend to offer their own digital uh, assistance, they will have a very dominant role in deciding on the fate of other retailers, particularly smaller ones. Yeah. And of course, eventually, today, you know, Alibaba and, and Amazon are encouraging retailers, and there's only a limited number of, of house brands, but as time progresses, once they reach maturity, they will go into house brands and squeeze out a lot of the retailers. Right, right. So, you know, I don't want to, you know, not sleep for the next week because I'm so <laughs> depressed. <laughs> but it, it is a, a totally new game. And, if, um, if, if you're not... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Finish your thought. No, no, go on. Well, I was going to say, if, if you're not terrified yet, then um, just take a drive on the New Jersey Turnpike. And, uh, and over the past... I guess year or so, maybe 18 months, these unbelievably massive warehouses have been, you know, just developing at that breakneck speed. Um, you know, and, and the logos are Wayfair and Amazon. Um, mm. So, you know, you know what's uh, happening and what's going to happen even more of. And of course, everyone's talking about, you know, the drone delivery and, and all this kind of stuff. Um, but just looking at those warehouses, I mean, they're extraordinary in their, in their size. And, you know, there used to be a couple of them and now they're, you know, the turnpike is littered with them. So, um, you know, it's all happening pretty quick. Mm, yeah, that's um, the problem. So well, I, I know we've, um, we've gone into, uh, uncharted territory here and, and that wasn't intentional, but, but it's always fun to kind of think about these things. Um, and and and, there, and there's really so much more we could talk about, but but you know, in consideration for your time, Peter, we'll end here. Um, but but maybe we could do another episode in the future where we can dig deep into uh, one of your many other areas of expertise. Uh, is that something you'd be up for? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I really enjoyed uh, talking with you, Phil. And um, thank you very much for the opportunity. Yeah, I've enjoyed it as well, and I look forward to enjoying you know more of your uh, more of your publications. Before you go, um, you know, if listeners want to learn more about you or what you do, how how can they do that? Um, do you have a an, an email address where people can reach out, or or do you prefer if they go to your website um, that you, uh, you know some place you can direct them to? Yeah, look, there are two uh, possibilities. One is LinkedIn, okay, and the other one is the uh, neurothinking.com website. Terrific. Um, well, thanks, Peter. Uh, it's really been great speaking with you. And, and thanks so much for sharing your knowledge and perspective on neuromarketing for today's marketers, um, specifically on, on the topics of priming and technology. Uh, I look forward to your future work. And, and again, great talking to you. Thank you very much, Phil. Thanks for the invitation. Very good. Take care now. You too. All right. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and I'd like to give a special thanks to Decision Breakers for making today's episode possible. We'll see you next time on Shoppernomics. Shopernomics.